Hello and welcome to episode 10 of the Trapping Today podcast. I'm your host, Jeremiah Wood, trappingtoday.com, the source for information and education for the modern trapper. Uh, thanks for being here. I haven't had a podcast recorded in uh, a little bit of time. Uh, I've been under the weather a little bit, but uh, coming coming back around, been sick for about a month. So uh, that's made it a little hard to record podcasts in uh, when I was uh, a young man, people would always tell me, uh, never have kids and send them to public school. They will bring all kinds of sicknesses home and you'll never go without a cold. Uh, and I, I kind of ignored that for a long time. And now I, my oldest boy just started going to school and he uh, brings home all kinds of stuff. So <laughs> I've been sick most of the winter. It's been kind of a bummer. But anyway, um, I just got back from tending some under ice beaver traps. I had a couple of 330 body grips, a couple of snares. Uh, both of the snares connected, so I get two beavers in that flowage. Um, I figure I caught about half the beavers out of that spot, and I pulled out. So uh, anyway, that was that was uh, kind of nice to uh, to get oh four or five beavers out of that area, and. Um, and to, uh, to kind of, I was effective. I was able to try a bunch of different sets, and I also know that I left several animals in there. And that's that's a unique place where I want to. It's it's close to home. The beavers aren't causing a problem there, but they have damaged. Uh, they've they've really pounded on the food source. And I actually recorded a couple of uh, videos. I'm going to put up on on the YouTube channel. Uh, about beaver trapping and and beaver population management, just a couple of clips. Uh, I talked a little bit about how you know we as trappers can help balance the beaver densities with the amount of available food. And this place hadn't been trapped for at least 10, 15 years, maybe a little more. And uh, what we notice is is there five, six abandoned beaver flow beaver dams for every one. A fresh one and the beavers are just you know coming into an area pounding the food resource knocking it all back uh, running out of food and moving on to the next one so you have a bunch of habitat that's just been been destroyed and hasn't been able to recover for a while so that's one way that nature regulates beaver populations but as trappers we can help regulate beavers through harvest and we can keep them in one area for um a, a longer period of time by harvesting a certain percentage of those beaver colonies and keeping uh, the pressure on the food base down enough so that there's there's plenty of food for each uh, successive generation. So anyway, I went into that a little bit and uh, did a couple of videos. I showed had a guy wanted to see how I set up this under ice snares. So I demonstrated that in a video. We'll see how it comes out. I may, or, I'll probably put that up if uh, if it comes out all right. And I also had, we had a little warm up here. We actually hit 50 degrees and some rain, which is is unique. So in northern Maine, some winters it will never get above freezing from January through about mid March. Uh, the temperature will never go above 32 degrees Fahrenheit. Uh, last winter we had a period of about 24 hours in January where it got above freezing and the rest of the winter it, it was 
it was always below freezing. So, so that's typical, but we also have some strange winters like this year where we've seen three or four times now we've had fluctuations of uh, 20, 30 degrees overnight. And the weather, we've got a, the north wind stopped and we get a south wind and it warmed the temperature up. We got a little bit of rain and then it's cooled back down. So it was in the 50s and, and then it cooled down overnight to about 10 degrees and uh, it, it's been bouncing around. And what that did is I, I got into this beaver beaver flowage and I started to see the places where where um, it warmed up and the water was moving a little bit and beavers were able to get out on land and started up a couple of trails and they were going out and, and uh, collecting aspen and collecting food on, on top of the snow. So uh, there are winters where they just don't get out at all, but where they have those windows of opportunity... Uh, beavers will get out and try to get some fresh food because that feed bed that feed pile underwater after a few months gets a little sour so they did it in this case and I just kind of showed in the video how you can find those openings and you can make some sets to take advantage of that and, and catch some beaver but typically when it cools back down and freezes uh, they're done using that until the next warm-up so it, it can be hit or miss you, you got to catch it at the right time but anyway, uh, so I get those back and I decided I've got them sitting here by the stove in the fur shed and I decided I'm going to take a physical break and uh, get a little mental exercise and try to run through a podcast before I go and start skinning. So I'll get over to them in a minute. But anyway, um, I have a, several things to talk about here. So um, I... Actually, haven't podcasted in quite a while. I, aside from being sick, I went on a ice fishing trip for four days to fish for muskies, and uh, that was quite an experience. I uh, caught a bunch of big fish. I think ended up with oh about 20 pounds of musky fillets, um, vacuum sealed in the freezer. So that was pretty cool. It was a heck of an experience. We caught a total of 11 musk lunge, and uh, if anyone anyone that musky fishes can tell you that uh, ice fishing for muskie can be very slow. Any fishing for muskies can be slow. Uh, so when you catch 11 in the course of a couple of days, that's pretty good. Um, so that's what's going on with me. Things are kind of slowing down, trapping today a little bit. Um, it's the end the end of the season for a lot of people. People are, are not thinking trapping quite so much. Um, and so traffic is slowing down from the website a little bit. There's... Uh, people are starting to think spring um uh, i'm i'm starting to think spring a little bit too but i'm trying to continue trapping as well and, and enjoying that uh but anyway there are this is kind of uh the end of fur harvesting season for a lot of people but the the beginning or middle of the fur selling season so i've been posting up some updates on the uh, fur auction results the, there's several state auctions that have been going on and uh, there are a few that I haven't haven't covered uh, but I picked up a few recent ones so the the big one was the Colorado fur sale I, I may have mentioned that in the last podcast so uh, that they moved a lot of fur in that sale and it was a pretty good indicator of the market basically the nothing nothing has changed in the fur market since we last talked. Uh, there was a Utah Trappers Association annual fur sale. 
uh, and and that went pretty well. They had basically what what we're seeing uh, from the Colorado sale and and beyond, and even even before that, is the bobcat market is starting to weaken. So bobcats have been a bright spot. Coyotes have been a bright spot, uh, but in both cases, the 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 supply of coyotes and cats is relatively high and the demand is relatively low. So there's still demand, but the buyers and the people who are using these these furs want the very highest quality that they can get. So the bobcat the the what they call like the A type bobcat, the highest quality bobcat uh, on the market. Uh, wide, clear bellies, lots of well-defined spots, and very thick, uh, prime fur, lots of fur, high fur density. Those cats are still selling good, and, and these auctions have had a few that have topped out around $700, $800 for, for a high. But the averages have been creeping down because the lower quality bobcats don't have a, a very strong market. So the bobcat average at the Utah sale was $231. So we've, you know, we've been seeing bobcat averages for about three to $500 for the last several years. So 231 was a little disappointing for some people, but, um, you know, relatively, I think that's that strong considering the rest of the market. Coyotes at Utah sold for $39. We're seeing 50, uh, seems like a lot of coyote averages are settling around Forty to fifty dollars right now. Uh, the really good coyotes can probably get sixty to seventy still. Um, but uh, we've got—I'll talk about it in a minute. We got a big fur sale coming up that's going to really uh, uh, give buyers a better understanding of what's going on. Beaver very low again. Uh, Utah was only six, six, seven dollars for beaver, but. Um, they, they don't have a very high quality beaver anyway. Their muskrat sold for $3.18. Muskrat, muskrats have been kind of disappointing. Uh, I was hoping for $3.50 to $4 averages on them. Early in the season, some guys were getting $5, $6. But that kind of went away quick. And um, the next sale I'm going to talk about is northern Idaho. So, so Coeur d'Alene. Intermountain Fur Harvesters up in the northern panhandle of Idaho had a sale, and like their muskrat average was $2.73. So again, muskrat market is is kind of weak. Uh, the ranch mink market is down, so that does affect muskrats. Beaver in Coeur d'Alene went for $14, so we're back to our standard $12 to $14 averages on beaver. Bobcats went for $263. Again, very similar. They had some some really good high prices, um, but uh, on average, that bobcat average is creeping down. Their coyotes averaged forty-seven dollars. Uh, one uh, encouraging thing was the martin at, over at that um, Idaho sale went for forty-seven dollars. And Idaho martin are usually pretty low. They're usually, you know, a twenty to thirty dollar martin when the Alaska martin are eighty to ninety. So that that was pretty encouraging. Um, it might be just a you know one-time deal, or it might be an indicator that the market for Martin is is strengthening a little bit. 
So anyway, that's just a little recap, little update on, on the auctions, and you can get on to trappingtoday.com for uh, more details on different animal, different averages for, for different critters. Uh, what else is going on? So uh, just a couple of plugs for um, for advertisement. A coyote Trapping School, I mentioned that in the last couple of podcasts. If, if you are looking to learn how to trap coyotes, this is a great opportunity to get a video training course uh, that takes you right from the very beginning. Uh, Chris Pope, uh, coyotetrappingschool.com. He has this series of about four hours of instructional videos that, that'll get you going and show you exactly what to use, what to look for, and how to trap coyotes. It's a $100 course for a year access, and you can uh, work on it at your leisure. Um, you can just uh, follow along, watch the videos uh, whenever you choose. Now for uh, Trapping Today readers and listeners of this podcast, you can get on there and get a 20% discount off of that. So if you're looking to learn to trap coyotes, um, for what you get, 80 bucks ain't too bad. If you're selling those coyotes in Idaho, uh, two of them is going to more than cover the cost of, of that course. So that's uh, coyotetrappingschool.com slash trapping today. And that'll take you to a page where you can uh, click through and get that discount. And... Uh, if you go to trappingtoday.com, you can find the link there as well. Uh, if you're on a desktop or a laptop, it's going to be on the right-hand side of the site. You go down to where the links are, and you just click on Coyote Trapping School. And if you're on your your phone, uh, you just scroll down when you're on Trapping Today, get all the way to the bottom, and you'll find the links there. And uh, click on that and, and uh, learn how to trap coyotes. Uh, if you already know how to trap coyotes, then disregard. But I do want to tell everybody about uh, my new book, Fur Profit. I mentioned it before, but the books are in. So the paperback books of uh, Fur Profit, uh, Trapper's Guide to the Modern Fur Market, are available. I have them for sale on the website on trappingtoday.com. You can click over there. You can still get the ebook. It's a PDF file uh, uh, for $5.00. And you can get the actual physical book, the hard copy, for 12 bucks, And that is shipping included, no tax, no shipping. Um, it's a secure site. You can put in your credit card and everything. It's not gonna, You're not going to have any issues with that. It goes through uh, Gumroad, which is a company that manages these payment, processes these payments. And uh, they do a really good job with it. So um, get on trappingtoday.com, click on uh, Fur Profit, click on that uh, book cover, and that'll take you there. And I, like I said, I got a bunch of them. I got, oh, I had, I had a hundred come in the other day, and I've got about seventy-five of those uh, still sitting here. And I, I would love to send you one. So, um, get on there, support trapping today, and uh, get a book. I, I think it's some really useful information for people looking to learn more about the fur market. Um, just uh, a little overview. Um, I'm thumbing through the book here, uh, give you a little overview of the fur market, the history of the fur market, talk about how to sell fur, what types of fur to sell, um, where to sell it, different buyers that are that you can contact, different auction houses, how to send them to the auction, how to look at a, a state fur auction and actually understand and interpret those results and, and realize how 
how state auctions, how uh, how the national auctions, how all that relates to your fur that you sell. And then we go into some alternatives to selling raw fur, like selling tanned fur, uh, <clears throat> making fur garments, uh, going in the taxidermy market. There's just a whole bunch of different things to explore. So uh, the book, I think for 12 bucks, you're getting a heck of a lot of information uh, all in one place. And I, I hope that you find it useful and I hope people take advantage of that. Um, my hopes are that by uh, the next season, you're going to start seeing that book in a lot of the trapping supply catalogs. So keep an eye out for that. And uh, and anyway, that'll be this is your chance to to get on the get the book uh, early, just as it's coming out, and, uh, and take advantage of some of that information. Um, so I mentioned that I was going to talk about the big auction coming up. So that is the North American Fur Auctions (NAFA) is having their big auction, the biggest auction of the year. And that is coming, as I record this, it's the 22nd of February. Uh, that auction is starting on the 26th. And it's going to go for a week, uh, about six or seven days. Uh, and f Wild Fur is going to be sold at the beginning of the auction. So Monday, next Monday, the 26th, they're going to start with Wild Fur. They're starting off it's gonna just overall looking at these quantities they they look to be down which is no surprise um, they've got uh, about 35,000 beaver uh, 16,000 wild mink 300,000 muskrats 150,000 coons so those are fairly low numbers and obviously the low fur market has resulted in uh, a lower harvest and uh, not a lot of fur to offer now, we are all kind of hopeful that uh, the pattern that we've seen throughout this fur market this season will, will continue. I don't think anybody sees an uptick in the fur market right now. It's just the underlying factors that influence the market have not changed. So uh, what we're hoping for is to maintain these prices, maybe a, a small bump uh, over the next uh, month or two. Uh, what we don't want to see is uh, a bunch of fur being offered and, and buyers just balking and waiting. And they, they did that at la the last NAFA auction last year. They You had buyers sitting in a room looking to get deals. They are looking to get fur really cheap. And NAFA just blew through a bunch of the items. It was like, it wasn't even an auction. They just, they'd offer up a lot and there'd be no nobody interested. And they'd just move on the next lot and on and on and on. They get low ball offers, just typical of a, a down market. It was kind of discouraging. So we're hoping that there's enough demand here relative to the supply. Uh, there's not a lot of fur out available in the country right now. So hopefully uh, this balances out well. And uh, we, we continue to see prices where they're at, maintain the status quo or get a little better. And uh, we we will get out of this this uh, low spot in the fur market over time I believe so that leads us to uh, one other thing that I had in mind and I I bring this up because I just I just had some thoughts uh, on on trapping in a low fur market and continue to hear these things people are pretty critical There's a, a lot of people especially old time some old timers that have experienced trapping uh, 
don't really like to see people continue to trap when the market's low. And I can understand where they're coming from because it's it's a, a supply and demand market. You know, it, it's a it's a commodity, fur is a commodity. And that means supply and demand determine prices. And by continuing to trap in a low market, we put fur on the market, increase the supply and depress prices or continue the the low prices. Um, that is, there's a valid point to be made there. But at the same time, um, there's a valid point that if we all stopped trapping and there was no fur available, what does that mean for the market too? Um, what if people who make wild fur uh, items, who make coats and so on, don't have any fur to work with and it's a real pain to try to get fur and they need to produce things. Does that mean they start going to fake fur, which is an inferior product? We all know that. Um, does it mean they stop producing fur, they go out of business? So so there can be some downsides to that as well. You know, we need to have some level of supply for the market. But the thing I was really thinking about today when I was on the ice on, the, on that beaver lodge, chipping through the ice and pulling up my snares, was I think about I think about the old trappers that I learned from and I think about the guys that that have been in the in the trapping game for 20, 30, 40 years or more. And those guys have a lot of experience and they have a lot of memories from the trap line, a lot of really good stuff. And they're good trappers and they can be relied upon to to take fur when they need to take fur because they've built up their level of experience and their expertise. They've built up their reputation. They've maintained these networks of people that they know and landowners and permissions. And they've gathered a heck of a lot of good stories to tell other trappers and to tell the youngsters on, on the way. So I thought about that and I said, what if, what if somebody like me were to listen to some of the naysayers that say you you shouldn't be trapping right now. Fur prices are too low. Uh, you're just flooding the market. What if What if I were to say, okay, um, well, we know that this market's been low since since about 2015. So so we've been three at least three years of a low market. What if that market continues to be low for another three years? How about another four or five years? What if we go a decade? If I went for a decade without trapping, what would that do to my life experience as a trapper? What would it do to my level of expertise? And what would it do um, to the stories that I have to tell as a trapper? I would have given up 10 years of my life as a trapper and not have anything to show for it. So that, you know, it really got me thinking a little bit. And I think it's important for us to, to all consider that, that you know, this is what we do. This is a lifestyle. This is a culture. Um, and, and it's an important part of our lives. It's also an important wildlife management tool. And um, if if we just give it up and there's nothing there and, and we're not supplying that market, um, there's some downside to that too, some serious downside. So, uh, you know, I, I hate to get too opinionated about it, but uh, I do sometimes get bothered by, by that, a lot of that naysaying that, you know, you need to stop trapping and this is a low market and you're just screwing up the the supply and demand of the market. Um, 
so anyway, that you know, I'm trapping, and I hope other people continue to trap. And and we understand we're not going to get a lot for the fur, and uh, probably less than half of my fur is going to go to the auction anyway. I'm going to give it away to friends and get it tanned and and uh, make some stuff with it and try alternative marketing strategies anyway. Um, but again, something to think about um, as you as you go along. Um, so anyway, that's uh. Let's see, we got uh, the NAFA auction coming up. We've got, uh, that's about the, the latest news. There's not a lot of to, lot going on right now in the trapping world. Oh, yeah, let's talk about a book. I just want to go over a quick book and then we'll end this episode and, and uh, I'll continue on to the next episode talking about trapping lure. Uh, but the first thing, first things first, let's... Uh, go over a, a trapping book for this episode and I just got this book sent to me by uh, John Chagnon of PCS Outdoors and uh, just a part of his personal collection John John really did me a favor here he so he John took over the lure making business uh, of Herb Lennon so Lennon's lures that was run by Herb's son Asa Lennon until recently and uh, a year or two ago John took that over and uh, with with Asa's help, he's been making Lennon's lures, and and doing very well, um, <clears throat> continuing on that tradition. So anyway, uh, John's a big fan of Herb, and and he's learned a lot, and he he's seen a lot of of uh, the the books and the instruction that Herb has given to trappers, and he kind of sees you know living in Michigan, he sees the results of the the Herb Lennon legacy. So he uh, you know he has this collection of of original trapping books by Herb Lennon and he's been he's been sending them to me uh, to read and send back to him and and I really appreciate that John if you're listening but anyway uh, the one he he sent me here recently is Mink and Muskrat Trapping by Herbert Lennon and this is a very small book it was published in 1946 and a very very interesting basically what Herb says in this book is um, he wrote uh, he wrote a book early on called The Secrets of Successful Trapping, and that was kind of an overall trapping book that he wrote. And as a result of that book, a lot of people uh, asked him if he could write write uh, some more books and write more about trapping smaller animals like mink and muskrats. And so he decided to uh, to write this book. And for you know, considering it was written in 1946, it's pretty amazing to see the differences in methods, but also a lot of the similarities. And the the basic concept and, and thing that I got from this book uh, overall was, was Herb talked about the importance of finding, uh, the, the ha- looking at the, the habits of these animals and their their diet. That's a very important thing, especially when you're thinking like, like mink trapping. So he talked about how you know mink uh, survive primarily on uh, they they will eat, they'll eat muskrats, but they'll also eat a lot of frogs, a lot of mice, uh, a lot of um, a lot of aquatic animals, and what that means is that you need to you know you need to trap in places where those food sources are abundant. And that's going to change based on the time of year that that you're trapping. So if you're under two, three feet of snow and everything's frozen up, where do you trap for mink? 
Well, Herb suggests that you ought to be going to a warm spring that comes out of the ground where you're still going to have open water and you're going to have some aquatic life that's available for mink to, to capture and feed on. Uh, the same goes for um, uh, dry land food like, uh, you know, mink are eating, eating mice. So if you're going up and down a stream and uh, it looks like mink, mink, we know mink are curious and they like to investigate a lot of things. Well, if there, Herb mentioned some, something here where, you know, you could have mink uh, inspecting a whole bunch of different areas along a stream. Um, but not necessarily all of those are going to be good places to make your set. And uh, what he says, uh, just a little little excerpt from the, the text here, he says, Possibly only one out of ten holes along a stream are of the kind where food is found. Therefore, mink only enter that one hole out of the ten. One trap in the right hole gets a mink or several mink. The other nine traps get nothing but rust. So it's just it's really something to uh, to consider when you're when you're mink trapping is finding that one hole that actually has food in it. Uh, so it doesn't necessarily mean you you can just go around and look for a likely spot and put your trap there. You really got to think about it and and consider whether that's a place a mink is going to investigate. And the same with muskrat, of course, they're eating aquatic vegetation, but uh, the same concept applies. So anyway, that's a that's a really uh, really interesting book. It's really short. It's only about uh, 19, it's 20 pages long. Uh, so it's short and sweet, but there's a lot of information there. It's really hard to find. I don't know if you'd even be able to find it. I don't know anybody that sells it. You might find a copy on eBay here and there, <clears throat> but hard to find. So anyway, that's it. I'm glad to be back putting up a podcast and um, stay tuned for that fur market, uh, fur updates, uh, from the NAFA auction uh, here in the next few days. And then second week of March, we've got the Fur Harvesters auction in Helsinki, Finland. That's going to be a big deal. We're really going to know a lot more about the fur market here in the next two weeks. So anyway, uh, thanks for listening. And if your trapping season's open, keep on trapping. If not, keep thinking trapping. We'll catch you in the next time. Thanks.